Hello and welcome to Everybody Loves Communism, the leftist history and theory podcast where we do the reading so you don't have to. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Jorge Rocha. And we are here with a very cool guest today, old friend of the show and of me. Uh, his name is Jared Shanahan. He is in Chicago right now. He's a writer, an activist, an educator. He's done so many things. Um, he has a few books, a few books out right now. Uh, one of which we're going to talk about today. We're going to have to have you back on to talk about the other ones. Um, but he is the author of a very, very good book called Captives, How Rikers Island Took New York City Hostage, out now on Verso Books. How you doing, man? Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Hell yeah. So uh, let's get right into it. Let's get right into it, shall yeah. we? Let's do it. it. So this book, which I must emphasize again, is very good. And we both liked it a lot. Um, It begins in the 1950s with the appointment of this, shall we say, girl boss reformer named Anna M. Cross as New York City's commissioner of correction by this rather relatively progressive mayor named Robert Wagner. And you'll never believe what happened next. Uh, And yes, this book tells the story of, you know, a girl who persisted and believed in herself and um, reformed Rikers Island into the, you know, wonderful rehabilitation humanitarian center that we know of today. Just kidding. It's awful. Um, Can you walk us through a little bit of this history? Sure. Um, first of all, just so it makes a little more sense to your viewers who might not follow New York City politics, um, this book was born out of a very current political debate in New York um, over whether to replace Rikers Island with a host of uh, skyscraper jails scattered throughout the city. It's a moment when Rikers has forfeited legitimacy in the eyes of um, a critical mass of New Yorkers um, and voices advocating reform um, have come to the fore and are in positions of power, or at least they were when I wrote this, right? Um, And I was involved in a campaign to close Rikers um, which became a campaign to open these new jails. And I became very critical of it. Um, and I decided to look back to the past and figure out um, how Rikers came to be in the first place. Um, you know, speaking with great scholars like my friend Jack Norton, who had already been studying this stuff, I learned that Rikers had actually been born out of a very similar moment and a series of moments throughout New York City history when the existing uh, jail system had been discredited by its brutality and humanity, um, and um, the city was torn about what to do with it, right? And I found that in those moments, um, it wasn't the, um, the right-wing law and order types who really saved the day, but at a few key junctures, it was the, the progressive liberals, the same people 
who um, are today advocating replacing Rikers Island with um, a number of these so-called um, humanitarian jails. Um, and so the, um, the bulk of the book begins in the 1950s with, with Anna Cross um, taking over the Department of Correction. And I, will, I must admit that I find her a very impressive character. Um, this was um, a, a Jewish woman who was able to navigate New York City's um, public sector bureaucracy um, as early as the 19-teens. Um, she rose to prominence um, in politics, um, distinguished herself as a judge, and um, was tapped in the 1950s to oversee the Department of Correction, where she stayed longer than any commissioner before or since. Right. Um, and I think you, it's, you're right to point to, um, to Wagner as a remarkable progressive, because this was, in a lot of ways, um, New York City's um, version of the New Deal. He called it the New, the New Deal for New York. It was a period um, in which the city was flush with, uh, with cash from the, the post-war boom, which was still in high gear. Um, and um, the, the mayoralty was willing to spend um, tremendous amounts of money on uh, public sector expenditures, a lot of, built a lot of hospitals, built a lot of schools, and endeavored to build humanistic, progressive jails. And this is the period that I locate as, as critical um, in the, the foundation of the Rikers Island that, as we know it today. Yeah, you Word. mentioned... You Thanks you for not taking the bait on my invitation to be sexist to Anna Cross. Um, yeah, and to kind of touch on Anna Cross a bit, it, it, it is, I think what you say, said, said about right now, but also in the book, it's like quite compelling. It's no way you can cut it. This person was impressive in terms of like just what they accomplished in their life. I mean, I think you said that they might be misremembering, but they got their law degree at 21, which even by the standards of the, like the, I, I understand like people did that much more back, uh, much more common, like at least before like the professionalization of a lot of careers. But even then I'm like, I don't know. That's still kind of like difficult to do in my, like, just thinking about it in my head. Yeah. So, she was thoroughly working class. Um, she was an immigrant. Um, her siblings died in passage to the United States she lived in the tenements along Christie Street. Right, that was um, crazy. Yeah, and actually, um, her, one of her earliest advocacy issues was um, rights for uh, sex workers because she grew up on a street that was frequented by um, sex workers and Johns, and she observed the cops coming and harassing the sex workers and letting the Johns go. And that was like a very early image for her of the injustice that working class women in the city experienced. And so um, I, one of the reasons why I focused so much on cross um, is because I think sometimes in abolitionist circles and radical circles, um, we have a habit of caricaturing uh, liberals and reformers. Um, and I just wanted to really emphasize that this was a very serious, dedicated, thoughtful person um, who was not limited by any flaws in her character or her intentions, right? But, she, but was limited by the politics that she had, right? So there was, Anna Cross was um, uh, from, from a liberal 
um, humanitarian framework was the perfect uh, vessel. Um, if there was ever going to be a progressive jail system in New York City, um, it would have been built in the 1950s by Anna Cross. Right. I, you know, and as you're describing right now, you know, to kind of add to the point that you mentioned, and you also mentioned throughout the book, you, I think, I think it was like the beginning of chapter two. You mean you're very plain, very plain terms. You, you, like you had mentioned the previous chapter, but then in, in that chapter, you just started off with very much plainly state human caging at Rikers Island began as a reform. And you know, as you said, and across, you describe her as like this well-meaning progressive. But you know, you know, just to kind of just harp on it a bit more. It's like, well, you 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 mentioned like you know a lot of organizer caricature, but but why 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 is it that that you think that like why why is it you feel that highlighting this so much focus that that she had and also a lot of people do on criminal justice reform, like like. And describing the trajectory of her career as like New York City Commissioner of Correction. Well, I think that political clarity on the question of incarceration is necessary, or else we just get bogged down in moral categories. Mm. So, Anna Cross did not want to spread racist terror. Um, Anna Cross wanted what was best for working class people from her perspective, right? Um, but what was that perspective? That was the perspective of capitalist democracy, where the vast majority of people need to be uh, powerless, relatively propertyless, um, and those who refuse the dictates of the wage market need to be uh, coerced by any number of social institutions um, into accepting wage labor. Cross believed in the use of social institutions in a progressive way, but to accomplish this same end, right? Cross believed that, you know, um, psychiatric hospitals and, you know, uh, a better family court system um, and, uh, you know, addiction services for people with substance problems. Cross believed that those were the institutions into which people should be forced in order to acculturate them to capitalist society, right? Um, And, I mean, I can imagine a liberal listening to this and saying, yeah, so what? She wasn't a radical. But I think that it's, it's worth emphasizing that um, Cross's, uh, all of her interventions in the, the jail system proceeded from accepting capitalist social relations as, uh, as necessary and desirable um, and then attempting to solve the city's social problems from that premise. Word. That is incredibly clear. And uh, yeah, I really feel in the book that you respect uh, the position that she's coming from and uh, it's all in all of its shortcomings and, you know, and yet, like you said, the, the bridge to Rikers was literally paved with good intentions. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that as a materialist, as a Marxist. Um, Doesn't get more material than a mile long bridge. It's true. <laughs> and that shit is still there. Um so yeah, on that note, um, you also talk about how there were all these organizations with 
an ostensibly positive mission, right? Nonprofits, religious charities, um, AA and all that. Um, they came in to kind of fill the gaps in the prison system's social services. She invited them in to come in and try to help people. But, you know, eventually what happened was these organizations became corrupted and co-opted by the very system that they were trying to intervene in. At one point, you describe um, how a, an expose came out on conditions in this women's prison, and suddenly these organizations were trying to dismiss these allegations and, you know, defend the prison. And, you know, to the casual observer, this might seem kind of counterintuitive. So why does it always go this way? First of all, to my fellow friends of Bill W., I would never publicly besmirch the program. Uh, but yes, um, I found myself in tracing back, you know, the present political uh, configuration around New York City jails, tracing that back in time, right? Undertaking what we might call a history of the present. Um, I found myself forced to reckon with the structural role that nonprofit institutions play in the social reproduction of working class people in New York. Um, and I was forced to confront the, um, the novelty of the role that nonprofits served in the city jails from the 1960s on. Um, and there's a curious incident that you point to that involves no less a feminist luminary than Andrea Dworkin, um, <laughs> author of Intercourse, um, who was, um, as a teenager, held in the Women's House of Detention in New York City for her activism against the Vietnam War. Um, and she was subjected to terrible conditions, uh, was sexually assaulted um, by, the, uh, by the clinicians there. And when she got out, she spoke out about what she had uh, encountered. Now, of course, she was not the first person to chronicle the, um, the abuses of the women's house, but she was one of the first middle-class, media-savvy white people, right? And so the case got a lot of uh, traction. She became, this is, was the beginning of her celebrity, right? Um, and all of these nonprofit organizations, which at the time they were probably better described as charities, right? But what grew into nonprofit organizations um, lined up to denounce her and to side with the administration against this young woman who was speaking about this terrible experience that she'd had. And that, you know, if these organizations had spent any time in the women's house, they must have known in their heart of hearts that she was telling the truth. Right. Um, and so I said, what what accounts for this? Right. Why are all these do gooders so willing to throw in their lot against a survivor who's speaking out? And these include uh, women's advocacy groups. Right. Um, and so the analysis that I ended up coming up with um, helped me make sense of what was going on in New York City in the present. Right. There are these nonprofit organizations that rely on access to um, state institutions like prisons, like schools, like psychiatric hospitals, so on and so forth. And 
their entire existence depends on this access, um, which means that they can be critical at times, right? But ultimately, they're going to be loyal. These organizations know where their bread is buttered. Um, and so this actually, uh, Jana Curti and I wrote an article that was published earlier this year for an academic journal, which means that none of you will ever read it. Uh, but it, it was called, uh, it's called Carceral Nonprofits and the Limits of Prison Reform. Um, and if you, if we'll you're read it, guys, so you don't have to. Yeah, part of the show is like we read academic, we'll read academic text so that people who normally wouldn't read it have access to it. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And Jean uh, is great. You should have her on. Uh, but so if you're, if, yeah. if you're interested in kind of the, the contemporary context of the, the history of the nonprofits that I conduct in, in captives, that article is the, is, is the key. Um, because we, we talked about how in 2017, 18, 19, all of these heavy hitting criminal justice nonprofits in New York threw in their lot with the creation of these new jails. And we were trying to figure out what are, what are they up to, you know? And the short answer is um, funding and access. I mean, these are, these are, these are organizations, right? They're, 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 I mean, capitalist organizations in the sense that they exist and thrive within a capitalist society and are, and are ultimately loyal to it. Right. Um, And so, that was I actually was not expecting to write a history of nonprofits in New York, um, but based on some great uh, work that had already existed, um, especially the, the the book on the Ford Foundation that I cite a lot, um, I was able to kind of piece together the special role that these organizations have played, and uh, I won't belabor the point, but their class position is very similar to the one that cross came to and have, right? These are, this is the benevolent wing of the ruling class. They think that working class people need to stay in their place, but they believe that this can be accomplished through arts programs and, and, uh, oh, the homeowner organizations. And, and in the case of the Ford foundation, especially, um, selecting, um, star members of oppressed communities and elevating them to community leadership positions, which where I live in Chicago is a way that the city is managed quite effectively. Mm. Yeah. I feel like people like, like I think the latest generation of that is like people like the, like the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation is a good example of like the latest iteration of what like the forward foundation and other organizations like that have done. Right. Yeah. And if you, if you get lured into debating these organizations on moral terms, you're going to lose, right? Because, oh, who could be against getting underprivileged kids access to, you know, uh, social mobility or, uh, you know, um, so if, if you're just debating whether it's good or bad to give poor people things they don't have, you're going to fucking lose. So that, that's why you need to have a clear line on the class position of these organizations. Who is funding them? Why are they being funded? What are they doing? And what are they refusing to do? The local Black Lives Matter chapter in Chicago in 2020 came out in favor of um, looting. They called it a form of reparations. There was an immediate 
backlash. Um, and the organizers who had conducted that press conference were sidelined from, from their group. The funders are not going to pay for that. They want, they want MLK. They don't want Malcolm. Right. Um, and so I think that developing a clear line on the class position of these organizations is the only way to understand them. Right. Yeah, word. Oh man. When you were talking about that just now, <laughs> about the ways that they think working class people need to be rehabilitated. Uh, I was thinking about the line from your book that I underlined. Uh, I don't remember who said it, but it was a report on this woman who was supposed to be like a success story. You know, they trained her in prison to be a secretary and, you know, she got out and I guess she got a job after that. And they were like, yep, we have given her the self-esteem that she needs to be a good little worker and, you know, uh, deal with the setbacks that may occur in her striving to get a nice, good job. And I was just thinking like, man, that is not what I think about when I think of self-esteem. <laughs> Right. I think of like, take this job and shove it. Like, don't tell me what to do. I'm a fucking person. But it's they've got to ask backwards. Yeah. And that was from uh, one of the annual reports of the Department of Correction. And actually, I benefited tremendously um, from the sheer volume of writing that they produced during this this the high period of reform in the DOC, which is from 54 to the mid 60s. Um, because these are people who really believed in what they were doing. Um, they were trained sociologists, um, they were clinicians, um, and they really thought that they were blazing a trail on Rikers Island in particular that was going to be emulated the world over. So they created a, a large amount of, um, of material reflecting on what they were doing and what they planned to do and so on and so forth. And so there's actually, it was a, it's a, it's easier to, to learn about the jails in the sixties than it, than it is in like the nineties or the aughts, because there's just so much more material, um, at least from the institution's perspective being generated. That's really fascinating. And just to kind of harp on one thing you mentioned before about nonprofits, like the class position, I think even people who are ostensibly who are like consider themselves leftists, I feel like recently fell into this the, the same the same trap of like confusing like the moral position with like the political class position with what the announcement of the I think it was like the owner slash founder of Patagonia announcing oh it gave away all their wealth but then you look into it it gave away all the wealth of the company and it's like oh moved it into this nonprofit that will have ownership over the company. And it's like, well, that's not giving away the wealth it, if, if it's still holding on to all the power that that wealth provides. Yeah, and transferring it into a tax shelter, which right. is effectively what these organizations are, at least the big ones. And I just want your, your listeners to be clear. When I'm, talking about, when I'm talking about nonprofits, I am not talking about your three-person mutual aid group that you and your anarchist friends run. Right. Um, no, I'm talking about the heavy hitters in New York City, like the the million dollar groups, like the like Just Leadership, Vera, Catal, all these groups that are flush with money um, in the orbit of the Ford Foundation, um, which itself was the archetype for these orgs. And and why was the Ford Foundation founded? 
for philanthropy, for truth, justice, and the American way. No, to avoid paying estate tax. That's yeah. the origin of the Ford Foundation. Um, and the any kind of social mission came actually significantly um, later. Mm. Follow the money, people. That's, uh, that's the ELC promise. That's what we promised to do. So uh, speaking of the money... Um, we typically think of the post-war period that you're writing about as this time of working class prosperity, right? People on all sides of the aisle, practically, uh, they, they think of it as the golden age of capitalism. But as you write about in your book, there were uh, illicit economies flourishing, uh, unemployment grew and prison populations grew in New York City and elsewhere during this time, especially among the black and brown working class. So why did this happen? And how do you think this should complicate people's understanding of these kind of New Deal social democratic politics, which the most prominent representatives of the left today you know, however you define the left, people can quibble about that. Um, how they're, they're, they're trumpeting them, uh, advocating that we return to these politics as the way out of our current crisis. Well, since your listeners are educated students of history, um, I will point out in particular, um, I am in dialogue with the classic of post-war New York, Joshua Freeman's Working Class New York. Mm. Um, And I want to say two things about that book. First of all, I learned a tremendous amount from reading it. Second of all, I think it needs to be destroyed. Um, (laughs) Freeman is the father who must be killed uh, because he paints this rosy, nostalgic picture straight out of some whimsical Woody Allen movie of New York City in the post-war years, whistle while you work, right? Um, and the only reason why that period looks good in his, is because in historical hindsight, the present is way shittier. But that doesn't mean that it was a good time to be a working-class person. I don't think there ever has been a good time to be a working class person. I mean, um, you know, when you when you read working class New York, you get the sense, wow, this was so great. Why would anybody have been against capitalism? Um, but as but as we know, that was a that was a period that produced one of the most formidable challenges to capitalism um, mm-hmm. that we've seen, right? Um, and so, I really wanted to write kind of like the goth response to working class, dark working class New York. Right. Um, Because I mean, you need, because that was capitalism. Social democracy in a capitalist country is capitalism. Right. right? Um, And capitalism relies on the widespread disposability of working people um, and uh, places profits ahead of human needs, human dignity, human safety. We can go on all day. Right. Um, And, New York City during its supposed uh, heyday of the, the what Freeman calls the, the working class polity was no different. And that's especially true 
uh, for the black and brown people um, who were um, who were struggling to secure uh, positions on the lowest tiers of the the wage labor market during that period. And also, and this is where it gets a little spicy, I admit, um, the the heroes of Freeman's account are these um, are these unions. Um, who have, you know, not exactly distinguished themselves in a lot of cases over the years, whether it be the, um, the teachers union in the Ocean Hill Brownsville strike or the villains of captives, the police union and the corrections union, um, yep. who emerged from the 20th century as two of the most powerful unions in the city. Freeman does not dedicate very much space to them at all. does not even talk about the jail system at all. Um, and, um, I think that we really need to reckon with the fact that this municipal union movement that was supposed to be so great ended up producing um, effectively the the sworn enemies of the, the most vulnerable working class people in the city. Mm. The book sounds about white, but I'm um, Ching. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, I think what you bring up, Jared, is really important. And, you know, uh, yeah, it, Let's, let's talk about the problem with unions. No, but I mean, uh, like more more really like the bad unions. So like throughout the book, over and over again, the workers comprising the, as you mentioned, the Corrections Officer Benevolent Association, you know, people who are involved in any organizing in New York City know the acronym very well of COBA, are aware of the their class position and behave as a coherent body. But... Unlike other unions that gained strength at the time with the help of, Rob, of Mayor, Mayor Robert Wagner, their demands and interests simply just did not align with working, the working class writ large. In fact, it seems like their demands and behavior continually oppose the interests of other workers. So, like, why does that happen, you think? Like, why, you know, and, and to, you know, more to, like, in the book you describe it really well, but like to the people who are listening, like, why, why does that happen and how... How should we think about this class fraction and the unit that represent them? That's a really interesting question. Um, COBA um, is, uh, from a writer's perspective, I love them because they're the ultimate villain. And they're not, they're not they some, you know, um, some bullshit direct-to-TV uh, direct villain. They're like a complex, like, Sundance villain. Because not only are they... Um, an organized enemy of the safety and dignity of the prisoners of Rikers Island, the vast majority of whom are black and brown. But the union itself um, is vast majority black and brown um, and has been under black leadership until recently for um, roughly a quarter of a century. Um, And so COBA paints a very interesting and complex picture of the way that certain municipal workers um, in New York, and this also can be generalized um, to the position of cops and guards throughout the United States, um, were able to leverage their unique role in repressing working class people um, to come out on top of the economic restructuring that we today call neoliberalism. Um, and in in doing this analysis, I drew a lot from an excellent scholar named Rebecca Hill, 
um, who has an article called The Common Enemy is the Boss and the Inmate. Um, and when I read that, you know, I had been researching Rikers for a year or two. And when I read that article, I said, oh, my God, this is this is the Rosetta Stone. I understand it all. I mean, honestly, like that, that book is like the manga and captive that essay is the, the manga and captives is the anime. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, Rebecca is drawing on, um, on Ruth Wilson Gilmore, of course, who tells this story, mm-hmm. the transition from uh, welfare Keynesianism to warfare Keynesianism. Um, and so Koba is a great example of, um, the, the, the law and order unions, who were able to really come out on top of the fiscal crisis. And what I found um, in when I hit the archives was that this was not automatic, right? It wasn't as if Wall Street approached the cops and the guards and said, hey, would you like this deal, right? Um, No, they fought for it. They fought for it um, by uh, engaging in work stoppages, in illegal workplace actions. They were very militant. Um, they were throwing their weight around their workplace um, in a way that a lot of unions were afraid to do. Uh, because, you know, as you know, in New York City, uh, New York State, the Taylor Law prevents any kind of industrial action in the public sector under threats of penalties that could cripple the union if they're enforced. Right. But what these unions demonstrated was that they're, if you have enough power, they're not enforced. So in tandem with the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, the PBA, the cop union, um, COBA was able to carve out a nice little niche for itself. Um, and when the city's, uh, when the city's coffers were overflowing, right. in the Wagner years, they got everything they could. Uh, and in a lot of ways, they were actually tailing the, the sanitation workers who were for a long time, the most powerful union in the city, just because of how unpleasant a sanitation strike is in New York city. Right. Um, but when the, the city's coffers started to dry up, or at least the city wasn't willing to pay uh, to reproduce itself anymore at the same level, um, COBA and PBA came out and said, we're sick of getting the same amount of raises, of being treated the same with the same benefits and so on as all these other city units. We're special, right? Up to that point, they had been engaging in what is unfortunately called Me Too agreements. Used to mean something else. Used to mean that, you know, municipal unions all kind of bargain together and they get the same deal. So the most powerful unions are, are pulling along the least powerful unions. Um, but when, this, when the, the cupboard was suddenly bare, the cops and the guards said, matter of fact, fuck all these other unions. You don't need, uh, you don't need, public parks as much as you need cops. You don't need schools as much as you need cops. You don't need sub- the subway as much as you need cops. And they really push this political narrative that the cops are the most important thing um, in in society and the guards, you know, are, are, are in the same boat. And actually, um, the, re- the research that I did into this, into um, rank-and-file activism among NYPD cops and DOC guards um, led me to um, to, to a, a really obscure um, front group for the John Birch Society called the, the Committee to Support Your Local Police, um, which was a very effective um, 
vehicle for right-wing organizing in police departments in the United States in the 1960s and 1970s and effectively prefigured the Blue Lives Matter movement. It was basically the same thing. Um, the same, and and I, um, I, I wrote a, a paper about this called Fight the Red, Support the Blue with a great policing scholar named Tyler Wall. And we actually, we were looking at pictures of the first Blue Lives Matter demo in New York City and um, the flyer for the event in this guy's hand, it says, support your local police right on it. There's a direct wow. line of continuity. So this kind of the same kind of rank and file activism that we see today among cops pushing Blue Lives Matter was what gave us this power imbalance um, that came out of the fiscal crisis where the, the cops and the guards are by far the most powerful unionists. Um, and the vast majority of city workers are just hoping that if they keep quiet, their wages will keep pace with inflation and they won't lose their jobs. First time is tragedy, second is farce, right? Precisely. Ben Marx was a smart, smart boy. <laughs> I quote him so- once or twice. Yeah. Yeah, I noticed. So then why do these guys, guys, girls... Problematic uh, boys. I'm sure there's some uh, non-binary cops at this point. Uh, Why do they always act whenever their demands go beyond, you know, wages and benefits and whatnot? Mm-hmm. Uh, why do they always act against humane treatment of their fellow workers? Why do they always say, hey, we want to be able to uh, beat people up as much as we like and not suffer any consequences for it rather than like, oh, I'm a worker, you're a worker, let's all stick together, guys. Well, I mean, that did happen exactly one time in history, the Boston police strike, right? Um, but I think in, in trying to tell this story, um, I deliberately stayed away from traditional narrative. Oh, cops aren't workers. Cops are their own thing. Um, and I understand why people say that, but it's really just a tautology. Right. It's like, oh, cops aren't workers because they don't act like workers. Uh, ergo, they're not workers, right? Uh, oh, yeah, they don't do productive labor, but so don't the vast majority of people in the country that we call workers, right? Um, so if, you, if your definition of workers is someone who works in a factory, um, I have some Marxist feminism you need to read, right? Uh, and also, I think you're not going to find very many workers in the United States. Um, but so I shied away from that old tautology, all cops aren't workers, blah, blah, blah. And I said, okay, but what if they are? Um, what if cops are working class people um, who from working class neighborhoods and the same with guards. What if they're, and, and we know this is true, right? I, at right. least in, in the case of the department of correction in, um, in, in Rikers Island, the vast majority of the people who work in Rikers Island are people of color um, from working class neighborhoods of color in New York. Um, I mean, and, I mean, look at the head of the police state here in New York city, Eric Adams himself. He's from yeah. Brownsville in Brooklyn. Yeah. yeah. Eric Adams is like the king of these guys. Uh, and gals, and because actually, it's, 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 at this point, Rikers Island is effectively run by women, um, and so these are working class people. A, a lot of them are people of color from working class communities, 
um, and they relate to their jobs the same way that most working class people do, right? Um, I read a bunch of um, accounts of working as a guard at Rikers. And what struck me was that these are factory memoirs. It's the same basic relationship, right? You're in this bureaucracy, right? You're a, you're a tiny part of it. You don't have any say over um, the, the, the production process. You're in charge of opening and closing a gate all day, right? It's the stupidest job. You hate it. You can't possibly feel good about it, right? And so what do you do? You find camaraderie. You find a little bit of freedom uh, wherever you can. You break the rules. You screw around. And you do anything you can to get um, whatever control you can get over the conditions of your labor. In fact, the, um, the great factory worker historian, uh, Noel Ignatiev, um, who recently passed away, visited me when I was locked up at Rikers Island. And we discussed this. It said basically like, he said, this reminds me of U.S. Steel. It's just this massive bureaucracy. And if they actually followed the rules... Uh, if the workers actually followed the rules, the place would come to a screeching halt, right? Um, so this, these are these are people who relate to their jobs um, the, the way that most working class people do. They want as much freedom as possible, as little oversight as possible, no one telling them what to do. They want to do the job as they see fit and otherwise be left alone. Now, what's the problem? Incarcerated people are not steel or automobiles or widgets or whatever, Right? The object that they are working upon in their labor is human life. And the tool that they are using is violence, right? So the line that I developed on, um, on the guards at Rikers, and I, I call this dark operismo, um, <laughs> is that these are normal working class people relating to their job in the way that normal working class people do except they're doing a job that simply shouldn't exist. Hmm. The job itself is the problem. It's like, it's, uh, it reminds me of this joke I've had with like some friends of like the, the idea of like, ha ha ha, like people should listen to and like uh, be caring about like the lived experience of say working class people who work at say in a, you know, in, in an investment company or uh, or Raytheon of like, but big the or like oh we should unionize like you know uh, uh, Lockheed Martin and it's like well uh, the the reason is a joke it's because like it, basically to your point it's like the problem is not that they're not workers the problem is that maybe the problem is like the fact of the matter is like the work itself right precisely and this is another place where I think that um, we don't have to forfeit the terrain to moralism. So liberal moralism wants us to debate forever whether we need more black guards or sensitivity training for guards and so on and so forth. And Rikers Island at this point is actually um, the staff of Rikers Island is kind of an intersectional dream come true. Um, uh, I recently read the staffing numbers um, and the guards are at this point majority uh, non-white women. Uh, and it's not just the grunts either. That's what I expected. I had this. I had this conception that Rikers was this boys' club run by white men, and that I had a theory that the reason I saw so many black guards all the time there was that because those were the worst positions, and the white people were really calling the shots. And sure, once you get up to the um, the, the top of the the 
the bureaucratic pyramid, the faces get a lot wider. But the the supervisory positions, um, the the you know the um, uniformed supervisory positions, are disproportionately uh, black women. Um, so, if you're approaching this as a moral question about you know the the moral character of the people doing the job or the positionality of the people doing the job, um, you're 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 going to be lost, right? Let's look at what are they actually doing. What what like what is what is the role that they're playing in New York City? And then at a certain point, it doesn't even matter, right? Um, who is the person doing it, right? And as we know, there's a long history of complaints um, in the Amer- uh, African American community that black cops and black guards are the worst of all, right? You know, as NWA said, don't let it be a black and a white one, right? Because the black one will slam you down on the on the on the, uh, the street, right? Um, and so this is where I think I think it's it's important to pull back from from the moralism. And you know, I was I was talking recently with um, with an, an an older comrade who was really active um, in Chicago community organizing in the '60s and '70s, and he was telling me that actually for a time, like even the radicals believed that um, if you got a critical mass of uh, of black cops in black neighborhoods then police brutality would be lessened and that that was something that they supported. Uh, But if you believe that that's true, uh, we have plenty of evidence from the intervening years uh, that suggests that it's not. Yeah. And I think, you know, something that we've talked about in this podcast is the fact that like, if you look at the U S military and the demographics, like, like racially, demographics and where they pull from it like matches almost exactly the composition of the United States which is like not what many people think but also to your point you know that's totally correct and in fact like when people talk about say on the flip side of like another kind of like uh, oppressive arm of the state the you know border patrol and ICE like they're mostly really just like people from the from the local community which are mainly Latino yeah so much for all those lips on Twitter saying if we had a woman president, there'd be no more wars. You know, Mark says that a ruling class becomes more dangerous to whatever extent it's able to incorporate representatives of the oppressed class into its mm-hmm. management and leadership. And I think you really see that um, with police, with uh, with incarceration, with with guards. And also with the nonprofit sector, um, which is basically an incubator for um, what we might call race leaders or race managers, uh, people who, you know, very much speak the vernacular of working class communities and have a working class pedigree, um, but ultimately are, are representing capital. Mm-hmm. 